everybody. Welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. I am Jake Wiskirchen. I am your host, and as always, the show is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, the company that I co-own in Reno and Sparks, Nevada, with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell. Uh, she is always running things behind the scenes, making sure that our payroll is right, credentialing people, following up with insurances, uh, running front office things, and I'm, I'm forever grateful to her for her uh, behind-the-scenes support so that I can go out and do things like this. So if you ever find yourself in Reno and or Sparks, Nevada, and you find yourself in our lobby, make sure you drop a note to Lindsay and thank her for all that she does for Zephyr Wellness. This episode of Noggin Notes deals with bipolar and similar types of disorders. I don't go too technical on the ins and outs and intricacies of what they are because I think that would largely bore our audience. But I do try to attach some colloquial understanding to it. And I'm pretty sure that I, yeah, um, I'm going to go there. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to piss some people off by the way that I conceptualize this. Uh, I'm going to leave that as the teaser. Uh, if you're at all familiar with our field and you listen to the rest of this podcast, you'll you'll understand uh, why that might be true. So although I don't use the language necessarily that I just did, I, I think I think I probably will, will piss some people off by, by the way that I uh, present the way that mood disorders uh, work in a, in a human being's mind. That all said, I hope you enjoy it. And um, if you have not yet downloaded our app, please do so. If you're only familiar with Noggin Notes through the podcast, we have a wonderful app. It's uh, derived uh, from... The ingenuity of one Safiso Rapinga, who currently resides in Cambodia. He's my partner with Naga Notes, and it's centered on the 10 core emotions that we all experience. So if you're interested in learning more about your emotional functioning and journaling some electronic notes in an app locally hosted on your phone and or tablet, totally encrypted, totally secure, nobody knows it's there but you, please download the Naga Notes app. I hope you enjoy this episode on bipolar disorders, and I hope you share it with other people. Hey, so we're talking today about bipolar disorder, and I should probably put a parenthetical S on disorder because there are several bipolar disorders that I will touch on during this uh, podcast. Bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 are the, the main ones that you hear about uh, th- you know, through common parlance among clinicians and in the media and so forth and you know, advertising campaigns for certain psychotropic drugs. And uh, I think what uh, begs addressing right up front is spelling and use of the word. So bipolar is just one word. It's B-I-P-O-L-A-R. There's no hyphen. There's no capitalizing of the P. Uh, there's no space in between there. It's just all one word and all the letters run together. So it's bipolar uh, disorder. And when I say bipolar one and bipolar two, uh, what should pop into your head is a Roman numeral one and a Roman numeral two. Uh, that's just how it's written. So while I'm not particularly a stickler on how people write this among themselves, I, I'm just giving you what the, the book tells us. And when I say the book, I'm referring to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, of mental disorders currently on its fifth edition. So the DSM-5 writes bipolar as one word. Uh, so beyond those two, we also have something called cyclothymic disorder. And then we also have bipolar disorder due to a substance use, and then bipolar disorder due to a medical condition. And then we have something called uh, unspecified bipolar disorder. 
and I, I don't want to spend a ton of time in the diagnostics because I understand that most of our listening audience is not comprised of clinicians who are interested in a refresh of graduate school diagnostic class. What we often get feedback from are, are uh, lay people, uh, non-clinicians who are just interested in learning some regular plain old language to use to describe what their psychological struggles are and their, their emotional distresses. So that's what I'm going to try to do here. I'm going to try to dip in and out of the, the clinical diagnostic language and common uh, language that, that you might use just, you know, in everyday settings, because I don't want to confuse people. And I certainly don't want to bore you to death so that you shut off the podcast and stop listening. Cause that's, that's not good for, well, I don't know what it's not good for, because we don't make any money. I was about to say, it's not good for our, our revenue, but <laughs> we don't have any revenue anyway. So, um, maybe I don't care if I bore you to death anyway, enough of that rabbit trail. Um, so the characteristics of bipolar disorder are chiefly that you have what's called a manic mood and then you have a depressed mood. And without uh, both parts of that, you, you don't really have bipolar disorder. So contrary to popular belief, I'll tell you what bipolar disorder is not. And what it is not is mood swings. Um, however, it is also very much mood swings. But I want to paint for you a picture of like a swing set on a playground. And I'm sure everybody's familiar with this. Uh, if you have a, if you're sitting on the swing and you're slowly rocking back and forth, there's a gentle, you know, gradual up and down and you're just enjoying yourself, maybe having a conversation with a friend next to you. That's a, that's a swing, right? Well, that's normal human experience. We're going to have mood swings through normal human experiences. And sometimes we can go very high and some, sometimes we can go very low. And I want to also point out that, um, a mood is very different from a, an emotion insofar as a mood is sustained over time. Now, we can slap arbitrary time frames on these things to determine what is a mood or what is an emotion. But if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you'll know that emotions typically only last in the brain a few seconds, typically three to nine seconds or so. And they are um, they have a neurological function. They tell us what's going on in the environment. They tell us how to respond to certain stimuli. Moods are a sustained emotion or a combination of emotions and thoughts and beliefs. And when I say sustained, they can be sustained over time for you know several hours to several days to even months. Uh, you can have a good a good quarter of business and have a very elevated mood, for example. And uh, and that doesn't make you mentally ill. Uh, what we're talking about here when we say mood swings are not a part of bipolar disorder, and yet at the same time they very much are, is we're saying we don't want to confuse normal life experience with some clinical condition for which you would be able to receive a diagnosis, get treatment, uh, bill your insurance, and possibly be you know prescribed medication. Uh, and the functional difference is I'm about to read to you the definition from the book. So if you're among those who likes uh, the book work and the definitions, please uh, listen very carefully. I'm going to read to you from the DSM what the definition is of a mental disorder, and I'm going to highlight some very specific language here. A mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress or disability in social, occupational, or other important activities. An expectable or culturally approved response to a common stressor or loss, such as the death of a loved one, is not a mental disorder. Socially deviant behavior, 
and for example, they list off political, religious, or sexual, and conflicts that are primary, primarily between the individual and society are not mental disorders, unless the deviance or conflict results from a dysfunction of the individual as described above. So let me re- review that. The dysfunction is in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning, and they're associated with significant distress or disability in those important areas of functioning. And typically we regard those as social, occupational, academic, legal, uh, health, uh, so forth. So in order to get the, get a diagnosis of a mental disorder as classified by this book, you know, the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, we need clinically significant disturbance in somebody's, uh, thinking their emotions or their behavior that reflects a dysfunction, right? So, just simply having a mood swing is not necessarily clinically significant disturbance. It's just called part of being a human. Where it becomes clinically significantly disturbed in someone's important areas of functioning is truly up to the individual user and or their people who surround them. And those would be the the significant relationships that you have with uh, family, friends, uh, job, and so forth. So there's two ways we can we can achieve a, a diagnosis to see whether or not your mood swing is far too out of whack or if it's just uh, the product of being human and walking the earth. Uh, one is you self-report it. You say, I am having a terrible time, I'm miserable, and I don't like these mood swings that I'm happening, uh, having. And typically they're not as, as swinging as those swings on the playground, by the way. It's, um, it's much more elevated and pervasive and, and uh, long-lasting, but I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, the other way that we can identify this is if everybody else around you tells you. Uh, so if there's really important people in your life who know you really well and they tell you that you have a problem, chances are really good that you have a problem. Now, we've seen TV shows like Intervention that um, you know pay great heed to the, the intervention style where a bunch of close friends and family members circle up and they gather the chairs and they sit down with the person and say, Hey friend, uh, you've, you've got some stuff you need to address. And then, you know, the friend has this epiphany or, or they, they violently react and reject everything that those people said or whatever happens. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is typically these people, you know, the, the user or the, the experiencer of the, the symptoms comes together, uh, over a period of time in a series of conversations with these folks and realizes that they have, um, and we're talking about mood problems here with the uh, with mood disorders like bipolar disorder or they have a you know they've been drinking too much they've been using drugs too frequently they're um you know they're too anxious they're too keyed up uh, maybe maybe they have some stuff that looks like a personality disorder uh, and, and those are for later episodes but um right now we're talking about elevated mood that looks like mania or depressed mood that you know looks like depression so let's get back to the the bipolar disorder talk and now that we know what a what a a diagnosis should look like it should be clinically significant disturbance or distress in a person uh in a person's behavior or functioning so bipolar one separates itself from bipolar two in a couple of very subtle ways uh diagnostically and again i'm not going to get into the the uh criteria because i i think i can make people you know i make people's eyes glaze over and drool come out of the sides of their mouth but essentially what we're talking about is the different now both have to have a depressive capacity to them. You have to have had a, a depressive episode in order to be diagnosed with a, a bipolar one or bipolar two. But the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two is that the manic part of that uh, pole, if you will, because there's a one pole that's, that's super down and depressed and another pole that's super up and elevated is the mania or hypomania. 
Now, mania is uh, often de- defined as uh, you know an abnormally and persistently elevated uh, or irritable mood. And when we say abnormally and persistently, we're talking about something that markedly departs from the per- person's normal uh, baseline of functioning. And we can we can evaluate normal based on the the individual him or herself. Or we can compare it against broader society. We can look and go: is this is this pretty typical of people to be to be up this high for this long, or down this low for this long? Uh, is it culturally appropriate? So we can we can compare against the backdrop, but then we also want to keep the individual uh, him or herself in mind. And I'll touch on that in just a second too. So uh, for for mania, like full blown mania, not hypomania, that would be what's associated with bipolar one. And typically, we're looking at at least a week where these, uh, this elevated mood is present most of the day, nearly every day. And w- what we're talking about is things like uh, inflated self-esteem, um, decreased need for sleep. And we're not talking about um, insomnia. Insomnia is something very different where, you, where the person actually wants to go to sleep but can't because they're, they're restless. Decreased need for sleep is saying, I don't, I'm fully rested after three hours and I'm ready to go at it again. Um, more talkative than usual, uh, pressure to keep talking, uh, flighty ideas, you know, thoughts rolling through their head, distractibility. Uh, and a big one is uh, that's often overlooked is an increase in goal directed activity. So maybe you're doing this socially or at work or at school or, or even sexually. Um, or you can, you can actually have some, some like body ticks, like psychomotor agitation, they call it. Um, and then excessive involvement in activities that have high high potential for pain or risk. So those are some of the, the the bullet points of what looks like an elevated mood amounting to mania. So again, we're not talking about swinging on the swings at the playground where you're like, I'm up and I'm down, and I'm up and I'm down. It's no, that's life. Uh, and if you can picture in your head, those of you who remember your your high school math, a sine curve has a nice gradual up and down, up and down, up and down uh, trend to it. That would be normalcy if you will and it's and, and and I'm I'm oversimplifying this I'm not saying that life is you know very even and predictable it's not at all but but the idea is that the the waves don't go above a certain amount and they don't go below a certain amount so you're going to have your highs and your lows but you're not going to crash into depression and sustain it for a long time and you're not going to elevate into mania and sustain that for a week or more as the book suggests another way of defining mania is uh when you're in mania, so it sounds it sounds actually kind of attractive. You're like, oh, cool! I don't have to sleep as much, and you know, um, maybe maybe my ideas are a little flighty, but but my my goal directed activities are really increased, and, and it sounds super productive, right? Well, it's not uh, because in mania, if you if you listen to the last bullet, there's an excessive involvement in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences or or risk. So, this is like. Spending sprees, uh, sexual escapades, uh, gambling, that would be spending sprees, I guess, um, foolish investments, uh, you know, things that don't return any reward, um, you know, b- buying a house, picking up and flying across the country to, you know, relocate for, for no apparent reason because there's no job and there's no family, you know, that kind of thing. And it's sustained, right? So that would be that would be indicative of a of a manic episode. And in manic episodes, uh, they, they're typically life-wrecking. Uh, that's where you go out and you blow your entire 401k on, um, I don't know, uh, uh, gambling would be a good one, uh, or a shopping spree where you wipe out the savings account or you rack up the credit cards to a, a completely unsustainable level where you can't pay them off. And you did it out of an impulsiveness that lasted a long time, several days, a, a week is what the book says. So 
that would be life wrecking where you have no more resources anymore and you and you just spent yourself into oblivion. Another way to wreck your life is to go engage in um, risky sexual behaviors, uh, contract a sexually transmitted infection or disease, um, impregnate somebody that you don't know. Um, you could um, maybe, I mean, I'm in Nevada where prostitution is um, still legal in uh, several counties. So you might go uh, running through the the um, the brothels, and that is a, a, a an example of both spending recklessly and uh, reckless sexual behavior. And and again, if you're listening and you happen to frequent the brothels, I'm not condemning you and saying you're in a manic state. There's there's certainly a sex business out there, and I'm I'm going to reserve my opinion on it for this particular moment. But the person who goes out there and can't stop for days at a time—that's what we're talking about. That's that could be potentially life wrecking. Another way you could potentially wreck your life is you, you engage in a in a bender that lasts for a week or more at a time where you're indulging in drugs and alcohol. And so there's sex, there's um, diminished cognitive capacity because you're under the influence, and um, maybe you're driving during this time. Maybe you're you're racing your car, uh, that that kind of thing. So in an, in a state of of mania, you believe that you're ten feet tall and bulletproof, uh, to to coin an old term, and. Uh, and that you don't believe anything can can bring you down. But here's the problem: after that mania, typically follows a depressive episode. And we and we I don't have to define what depression is. Depression is a you know a very low period sustained over a long stretch where you've lost interest or pleasure in everything, and you just want to crawl into your covers and stay there for a while. So on those two poles, you you may meet the criteria for a bipolar one disorder. Now bipolar two. Is hype, it contains something called hypomania, and the interesting thing about hypomania is that it's got the same characteristics as the mania, but it um, it's only judged on four days, so it's a little bit shorter sustained as opposed to a week. And again, I'm talking textbook definition here, and I'll get into the the colloquial stuff in a, in a minute. But the technical definition is is four days, and then there's some some verbiage in the in the definition of of how to meet the criteria that doesn't quite match mania. So now let me get into the colloquial. If you go back to that sine curve for a second, imagine imagine a sine curve of ups and downs in your mind. Mania is when the curve shoots all the way to the top of the graph. And that would be mania. And that's where that's where you just you do things that are that are awful and you and and you regret them later like for to to no end. Like it's 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 magnitudinal how much you would ruin your life. Hypomania would just shoot up a little bit, but not all the way to the top of the graph. So it's it doesn't quite have the potential to wreck the life, but it does increase in all those goal-directed activities, the irritability, the grouchiness perhaps, um, the elevated mood where you think you're you're you know unstoppable or whatever, and um, and you're full of energy and you also can't sleep. So the difference between hypomania and mania is really just one of, of observation and report. Um, and the interesting thing is, is in the clinical world, for us uh, sitting in the office, when, when the person possibly struggling with bipolar disorder, uh, either type, walks in, is they usually are propelled into, cl- into treatment by their depression, not by their mania. Because mania feels good. And even if you don't wreck your life in it, it feels good. So there's no reason to go seek treatment. In fact... What's often problematic for people who are uh, related to the to the individual who's suffering from it or um, or who are closely associated, they may observe these activities and they may even point it out to the individual and say, "Hey, look, I think you're in a manic state here, man. Look at look at all this stuff that you've done over the last few days." 
And it will often be met with such resistance and rejection and denial that the the critical feedback is simply not heard because for a variety of reasons. One, the the mood is so elevated that it feels good and it can't possibly be bad uh, to the to the person who's enduring it. Secondly, they're limbically flooded. And again, if you've listened to the podcast and you heard me talk about emotional functioning, when you're in limbic state, logic does not penetrate. So it doesn't matter who comes to you or how many interventions we have or how many chairs we circle around you and how much reason and, and evidence we we present the person who's receiving it will not hear it in the manic state. It's only after the manic state when they've crashed into depression that they'll probably hear the evidence, but by then it's it's too late. So the trick for us is when these people walk into to therapy or to counseling, they'll present as depressed, and that's the first thing we'll jump on. Usually we'll, we'll, we'll look at depression and we'll say, yeah, you check all the boxes, you, you lost interest or pleasure, you've been down, your mood is, is diminished, all this stuff. Um, but they won't necessarily self-admit the mania or the hypomania that got them there. Now, if I had uh, if I had you in front of me and, and this were uh, in a classroom, I would clap my hands. So I'll do it here. And the hand clapping is simply to draw your attention to, to an important point. Because I know that uh, human attention tends to drift uh, every seven to eight minutes. And I've been rambling for a little while. So I'm going to clap my hands and make a very important point. Hypomania is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Remember, it's not, it's short of full blown mania where you're going to go blow the savings account shopping at Kohl's or whatever, and you know buy shoes that you don't need uh, at the expense of your toddler's uh, food <laughs> or clothing. Um, in order to have bipolar two disorder, you must have the depression also. So hypomania in and of itself is not necessarily bad because you haven't elevated to full-blown mania. You've still got the goal-directed activity increase and, um, and some, some other stuff that comes along with it. The reason I say this is because some people may be listening to this going, well, I slip into hypomania, it sounds like, when I you know really turn it on to prepare a project for work. Or if you're an attorney and you're listening to this and you go, you know, I got I got a big uh, trial coming up and I ha- or a hearing and I have to prepare all this stuff and you and you slip into that zone and I say zone because if you're an athlete listening to this, you know what it's like to be in the zone where you love to work out, you can't wait to go to the practice range, the batting cage, the whatever it is that you go to for your particular sport. Um, you're performing on the field, you're locked in, and that can last for several days. It's great to be in the zone. And it's and there was a really interesting article from Psychology Today a couple of years back that talked about presidents, U.S. presidents, who all had a hypomanic uh, characteristic to them because it helped them get stuff done. So uh, in moments of motivation, uh, I may slip into hypomania because I've got a stream of consciousness that's pouring out ideas for podcasts or articles or ways that I could supervise my interns and my students or ideas for Zephyr Wellness or, or anything along those those lines. And I may stay in that. Um, the difference, though, is that, again, it's not life-wrecking. And if we go back to the definition of um, of what bipolar 2 disorder is, I have to hit the criteria for depression. So if I don't slip into depression, then I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not suffering from bipolar disorder. And remember what constitutes a mental disorder. It's got to be clinically significant distress in my life in one or more important areas of functioning. So if I'm not sacrificing anything except for maybe sleep and my health isn't suffering because of it, and my family's not suffering, and my and my tasks are all getting completed, and all that is resulted is I've got a little more productive for a short period of time. Hypomania isn't a bad thing. Hypomania is a bad thing when it's accompanied by depression and it interferes with your basic abilities to uh, complete tasks that are required of you. So, 
I want to I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about um, also when we when we discuss bipolar disorder, it often masquerades as anxiety, right? So somebody somebody might walk into the office saying, you know, I'm I'm, I'm anxious, I'm you know I'm doing all this stuff, I can't think, I got racing thoughts. Um, anxiety can ma- masquerade as a hypomanic episode. And, um, if, if through the interview, the clinician says, Hey, you know, have you ever had any depressive thoughts? And we go through that process and screening and the client says, yeah, you know, I've, I've had some depression before there might be a temptation to lean toward bipolar disorder. And I would, I would encourage clinicians who are listening to this. Don't go that direction. Um, heed your instincts and maybe stick with the anxiety until you receive some information that says that the person overspent, overindulged in sex, engaged in drug and alcohol, um, binging, or uh, risky behaviors, then then you're not talking anxiety anymore. Now you're talking a mania-looking appearance, and you may be dealing with a bipolar disorder. However, and now I'm going to get into the next type of disorder here under the, under the uh, bipolar and related disorders chapter. You don't have to meet all those criteria that make bipolar disorder very, very tough to diagnose. And I don't mean tough because it's challenging intellectually, which, which it is, admittedly, because it's tough to look at somebody in mania and determine whether or not it's mania or something else. But because it's, it's hard clinically to hit that stuff, um, only six-tenths of a percent of the population ever struggle with bipolar disorder over a, over a 12-month span, as reported by the, the stuff in the book here. So that's, that's basically one in 166 people. So if you're a clinician listening and you and you have a caseload of of 150 people, you should really only statistically have maybe one person in there with any type of bipolar disorder, one or two. So likely what you're dealing with is somebody with cyclothymic disorder. And I think that's really rarely diagnosed. I almost never hear about it from my interns or from my students or from my coworkers or even my colleagues. We hear a lot about bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder, because that's what's been popularly pushed through advertising campaigns by pharmaceutical industries because they've got some stuff to treat the the, the depression end of bipolar disorder. But the interesting thing is we, we haven't yet figured out a med to prevent mania. And I want to I want to pause there intentionally and let that sink in. The one key component that makes up bipolar disorder and not simply depression. I don't want to say it's simply depression because people struggling with depression have a tough time. But the thing that keeps it from being just depression is the mania. And we haven't figured out chemically how to prevent that yet. So we've got some ideas and there's some things we can throw at it. And, but, but mainly we're just numbing people out. It's not, it's not an effective way to live. It's not, it's not a desirable way to live. So if you're getting medication for your, your, your bipolar disorder, you're, you're really getting medication for the depressive end of it. But nothing's really been figured out to keep you from going manic. I do have an answer to that, though, however. If you stay tuned, I will give it to you. Um, But we'll talk about a little bit about cyclothymic disorder here for a second. So basically what cyclothymic disorder is, is um, I'll just read the criteria. Uh, For at least two years, um, and then it's for at least one year in children and adolescents, there have been numerous periods with hypomanic symptoms that don't meet criteria for a hypomanic episode, meaning uh, in order to get a hypomanic episode, you have to have, I believe, five of the criteria that they list. Um, and so you may have only three of them, right? And that's what I'm talking about with this this hypomania where it's like my goal-directed activities are increased, my sleep is decreased, uh, my elevated mood. Great, that's three. But we need five to get a hypomanic episode. So you can, you can have a hypomanic-esque look to what your mood is, is it is that you're experiencing without actually being hypomanic diagnostically 
And this is where clinicians, especially uh, younger clinicians or, or fledgling clinicians, really get, get kind of twisted around. Um, they want so badly to, to render a diagnosis in order to get a treatment plan that they'll just kind of mentally fill in the gaps and go, yeah, yeah, it's bipolar disorder. It's like, whoa, it might not be. So let me continue reading. So numerous periods over for at least two years were hypomanic symptoms that do not meet criteria uh, for the hypomanic episode and numerous periods with depressive symptoms that do not meet criteria for major depressive episode. Major depressive episode should be hard to diagnose as well. And I, again, I don't mean intellectually, cerebrally hard because it's just tough to figure out. I mean hard to check as many boxes as were required to get that diagnosis. So while de- depression is overdiagnosed, anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder is overdiagnosed, ADHD is overdiagnosed because they're just kind of cheap and easy to reach for, the harder diagnosis takes a little bit more investigative work, and what you probably should be landing on if you're a clinician is cyclothymic disorder. Uh, it goes on to say, during the above two-year period, the hypomanic and depressive episodes have been present for at least half the time, and the individual has not been without the symptoms for more than two months at a time. So we're talking two years where no more than eight weeks have you been symptom-free. That's that's still really hard to hit. If somebody's going in and out of, you know, I'm sort of depressed, but I don't meet all the criteria up to. I'm sort of manic, but I don't meet all the criteria. And oh, by the way, remember the, the, the definition of a mental disorder is clinically significant distress or impairment in your important areas of functioning. If you're just having mood swings, but there's no distress in your marriage, in your job, in your uh, production levels, then you don't have cyclothymic disorder. You've got some mood stuff, and I'm not saying that talk therapy can't help. But we want to be careful about these definitions, or rather these diagnoses, because what happens a lot of times is we get, the, we get really lazy diagnostic work in my profession, and the clients end up suffering. And what's really, it's, it's really terrible and, and distressing is that the clients, through the stigmatization of, of our field broadly, they'll take a bipolar diagnosis. If somebody renders it to them, say, at you know, 20 years old, um, and they didn't really know what they were doing, and they didn't really get a good comprehensive interview, uh, because the stigma of our profession is such that bi- things like bipolar disorder sound heavy and permanent, they'll take that forward into life, or at least into their next clinical appointment, because chances are really good if you if you're lazy at your diagnostic work you're not going to be very good at your clinical work anyway and so inevitably that person's going to leave treatment and go seek out another professional and when they do they're going to walk in and go hey i was diagnosed diagnosed bipolar by this other person all right i might take that and go thanks duly noted and then i'm going to conduct my interview again anyway on my terms but again with the the we're under a crunch to perform quickly uh, insurance and all that stuff there's a whole bunch of people who want that information from the previous clinician and will take it and go, all right, cool, but bipolar disorder, I know what I'm dealing with. Somebody else already did the work, except they didn't. And now the next clinician is using the previous clinician's inaccurate diagnosis and formulating a treatment plan on, on that. And the client ends up suffering perpetually, possibly for a long time, by people who are treating the wrong thing. So if we don't hit the symptoms for these these diagnoses, and we end up with something else like, say, anxiety, and and, all, uh, and in the anxiety podcast, I talk about how anxiety and depression can uh, masquerade as each other sometimes. If we end up rendering an inaccurate diagnosis, or God forbid, and I actually have heard this, uh, I've heard this uh, discussed among my my peer colleagues by 
people who should know better, uh, supervisors of the profession and so forth, they're actually instructing students and interns to quote-unquote render the less diagnosis or the lesser or the lighter diagnosis. And I'm like, how could you possibly do that? That's so unethical. You render what the criteria say you render. You don't You don't sit there and just be polite because then you're feeding into the stigma, first of all. But secondly, you're totally misguiding this person in their treatment. I mean, can you imagine if a, if a medical doctor, you know, said, well, I don't really want to diagnose this person with cancer, even though I know there's cancer in there. We'll just, we'll just diagnose a stomachache and give them Pepto. That, that person's going to die. Like that's, <laughs> we would never think of doing that in the medical community, but in, in the mental health profession, apparently it's, it's in vogue to, uh, like mind sensibilities and be polite to give, and I'm gi- giving air quotes around all these things because I don't really believe what's coming out of my mouth. Um, but if we're giving quote unquote lighter diagnoses to people to save their their ears from hearing the quote unquote horrible diagnosis of bipolar disorder, we're not doing anybody any favors. And oh by the way, I just happen to believe that everything is recoverable. Uh, so just render the diagnosis as you see fit, and then you know, I'm talking to you clinicians. <laughs> render the diagnosis as you see fit, and then treat it as appropriately as you can. Uh, and here's why I want to leave off on that. So uh, there are a couple of more um, bipolar type disorders where there's uh, substance um, induced or medication induced bipolar disorder, and then there's a medical uh, medical condition induced bipolar disorder, and then the the unspecified. But basically, all those are is you've got the bipolar symptoms, but it's because you're taking a substance, even if it's prescribed, um, it's still substance induced. Uh, the other one is you're experiencing these uh, elevated moods and depressed moods because of a medical condition, like you had a knee surgery and you can't engage in life's activities anymore, so you're depressed. Uh, but then one day you have, or a series of days, because you have to meet the criteria for a week, um, you have a, a really elevated mood because your knee feels really great, and then you go out and you do a bunch of activities and you run around, you go for a hike, and you go on a camping trip, and then you come back home, and then it, it's like swollen and throbbing, and you can't do anything anymore, and you plunge back into depression. Well, that's not bipolar standalone. That's bipolar because of a medical condition. Uh, and then unspecified is simply that, um, you haven't met the criteria for any of that stuff. And, um, but, but it looks, walks, talks real similar to bipolar disorder. So that's the nutshell there. But I want to get back to what I teased everybody with a little bit ago, which is, um, there's a, there's hope, right? So here's how I think you can, uh, you can cure, and I am going to be very precise with that. I think you can cure bipolar disorder. And uh, I know that there's probably people out there whose heads are popping right now because uh, there's mythology and orthodoxy that suggests that bipolar disorder is somehow permanent. But I fundamentally don't believe that uh, for the following reason. We, uh, we just weren't created to be living in misery. So if you're miserable, again, Clinically significant distress in one or more important areas of functioning. Uh, if you're uh, if you're walking this earth, you weren't meant to walk this earth in misery, and chances are really good that you didn't come out of the womb uh, with bipolar disorder. So you 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 developed it somewhere along the way, and therefore you can also undevelop it, so to speak. And here's how: put the sine curve back in your head for a second. Okay, so you got your ups and your downs, and you're you're mostly predictably stable, and you're enjoying life's uh, highs and lows. Bipolar one is you shoot all the way to the top of the graph in your mania, your elevated mood, and then you plunge back down to the very bottom of the graph for your depressed mood. And uh, you know, that only has to happen once, really, uh, for for your, 
you know, for you to meet the criteria of bipolar disorder. That's why some people say it's, it's quote unquote for life. If you've ever had one manic episode, then you can technically be diagnosed for the rest of your life. I, I think that's worthless because, uh, again, you have to have the accompanying definition of clinically significant distress or impairment. So if you had a manic episode when you're 20 and you're now 45, and there's no clinically significant distress or impairment, there's no reason to diagnose you with bipolar disorder. But moving on from that, the idea is such that if you can start to sense yourself going manic or going depress, depressive, you can stop it. Now, I know this sounds a little bit like heresy in some circles, and, uh, and I don't really care because I'm here to speak hope and life into people, not, um, you know, permanent... Uh, disfiguration or uh, permanent struggle. So if you're on that wave and you feel yourself starting to slip into mania, if you're aware of that, you can alter your thoughts to something else. Like, for example, if you find yourself itching to go blow the savings account on shoes at Kohl's because it's payday and you want to just go get a new wardrobe, and you're aware of this, and you start to feel a little elevated, and you're like, yeah, 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 it's going to be really great, Uh, and you're aware of that, then my invitation is that you could also be aware enough to notice what's at risk, and what's at risk could be a number of things. Similarly, if you start to feel yourself slipping into depression, you start getting a little grouchy, a little bit irritable, you start snapping at people, you start having a a laissez-faire attitude when you didn't have one before, or maybe things aren't as important to you, maybe you want to give up on some of your hobbies, you can notice that and go, you know what, I don't, I don't think that I'm right in the head right now, and I, I'm not used to this, and I don't like being miserable and down. And then you can pivot and choose different thoughts. And yes, I am oversimplifying this, and I know that. There's, there's going to be some criticism, I'm sure, about how I'm oversimplifying it, so I'm just going to beat everybody to that punch and say, I realize I'm, being oversimplification. I'm oversimplifying right now because it's a podcast. Um, but the idea is out there. The idea is such that it's possible, right? So I'm not here to walk you through the necessarily the, the mechanics of it. Uh, that's for therapy. Uh, and the particulars would be individual to the individual people. But the idea is possible that you could stop yourself from sliding all the way into depression where you're staying in bed for days and weeks at a time with the, the curtains drawn and refusing to engage and uh, not showering and giving up on all your um, hobbies and, and interests we can stop that. We don't have to go that far. And that's really good. It's a good thing to be able to be aware of oneself and one's moods and one's own physiological responses to things such that you can self-correct and determine your own course. It's awesome. It's real. It's, it's hope-inspiring, honestly. And I think too many people have not been, have not been given this message. In my experience clinically is that when I talk like that to people who are struggling with mood disorders, their ears hear it and it resonates with them. They go, I knew it. I knew it all along. Somehow I knew this wasn't permanent. It couldn't have possibly been permanent. Even though my doctor, my, my psychiatrist, my other three clinicians all told me, nope, this is just something you're going to have to manage for the rest of your life. Sorry, Charlie. I knew somehow deep down that that couldn't be possible. And so when I tell this to these people, it really gives them some inspiration and it gives them some insight. And then they continue engaging in treatment and they start making adjustments and little tweaks to their, uh, their habits and they develop different habits and they practice new things and they start speaking life into themselves and they become more self-aware such that 
when the inevitable mood swing hits, when the extra paycheck hits the account, because if you're getting paid every two weeks, that's 26 weeks and there's only you know 12 months and two pay periods a month and so we end up with two extra paychecks i think everybody knows what i'm talking about if you happen to be on that cycle there there are two months of the year when you'll get a third paycheck and you go oh time to go blow it no 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 (laughs) if you've had that habit in the past you don't necessarily have to repeat it you can notice and go i'm going to hang on to this paycheck and i'm going to put it into paying off my mortgage paying off my car loan Uh, paying down some credit card debt, putting it into retirement, whatever you want to do that's not blowing it at Kohl's. And I don't know why I keep picking on Kohl's. Kohl's is a fine department store. (laughs) But for me, I guess I I always find myself going hypomanic at Kohl's because I want to buy a bunch of stuff because it all looks good on me. So um, sorry, Kohl's, if you're listening. Um, I'm not picking on you. In fact, it's an honor because you're my favorite department store. Um, but you can notice this stuff and then not go blow the paycheck. You can notice that, that your urge to, to satisfy your sexual desires and not go do it for several days in a row. You can notice your urge to go indulge in uh, whatever substances you want to indulge in and stop yourself. This is how we stop most addictive behaviors, most addictive patterns is self-awareness, knowing the triggers, knowing the keys, knowing the the, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the people, the places, the things that take us to that place where we don't want to go, and we, and we choose differently. So what I'm saying is mood disorders can be controlled simply by personal awareness and, and choosing differently than the patterns of the past that led you to where you are. I don't want to say any more than that. I think I've rambled enough, and I think I've probably ruffled, if there's clinicians listening who are of the traditional orthodoxy, I've probably ruffled enough feathers um, and, and made enough heads pop. And I, I kind of hope I get some hate mail because um, the mailbox has been largely silent uh, recently. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of inviting that because I want, I want that di- discussion. I want to be pushed off of this. If somebody has some ironclad empirical evidence that suggests that bipolar disorder is somehow not curable, I want to know about it because I haven't found it yet. And what I have found is people who struggle with bipolar disorder come in and they have counseling and they, they engage in therapy and they get better. And they sustain it and they don't get depressed anymore and they notice their mania coming on and they either channel that energy into something good and productive and wholesome and beneficial to their lives or they just don't go there. And overall, I think if you think back to the sine curve and the, and the, and the waves and the, and the spikes on the chart, if we elevate our overall happiness, the baseline happiness, then the, then the mood swings are a little less possible because overall we're just overall elevated. So it's it's harder to get higher and harder to drop lower because dropping lower takes us so far away from what we're now used to, which is a, a higher level of happiness, that's just unattractive. And the and the and the and the red the red bell red bells, I guess the red bells, red lights and, and bells and whistles go off and go, whoa, 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 er, 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 you're you're getting depressed again. Whereas somebody who has a baseline that's much lower, maybe their expectations are lower, maybe they've been beaten down by life, maybe they're carrying a lot of shame, they'll plunge into depression uh, much more easily because they're closer to it. So self-awareness can help us make better decisions to push higher our own personal baseline so that the, the swings themselves are, uh, are, are narrowed. The oscillation is narrowed. Those crests and, and valleys and troughs, I guess, if I'm sticking with the wave terminology, those crests and troughs are narrowed. And overall, you're just happier. You don't need mood swings if you're just happy. So I hope this was useful for you. Um, I, I I went a little uh, 
went a little deep, I guess, and uh, and and I I tried to tried to balance the the clinical with the with the common language, and uh, took some swings at some some traditional thinking, and uh, and I hope maybe it it did something for somebody out there. Um, this was a listener mail inspired episode, and uh, please keep them coming. On behalf of the Noggin team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I continue wishing you all great mental wellness. Take care.